You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Pratt Library. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's guest. It is my honor to introduce to you this evening's moderator, Mark Steiner. Many of you, probably most of you, have heard him on the radio, know who he is. But he is um, a radio and podcast ho- host who has also hosted the Mark Steiner Show. He has worked at WYPR, WJHU, and WEAA 89.9 FM. He also operates his own production company, the Center for Emerging Media, and he produced the Peabody Award-winning series, Just Works. And he teaches a class at University of Baltimore on the Poor People's Campaign. So some of you may remember the Poor People's Campaign. Thank you very much. Our feature guest writer this evening is Kara Sheard activist, national youth advocate, public speaker, and author. He recounts his story of living the life as a drug dealer and serving almost 12 years in prison for drug trafficking. Today he works with young people to help them avoid the dangers of the street culture, and he advocates for policy changes that support their safety and development. With his friend, award-winning R&B singer Mario, they founded the Do Right Foundation, a nonprofit that from 2008 to 2014 provided a lifeline to children living with family members abusing drugs. In 2012, he partnered with the Medicine Abuse Project and his work there led to collaboration with the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. During the tenure, during the tenure of President Barack Obama, Sherrod worked with the White House Office on National Drug Control Policy and as part of the committee, for President Obama's clemency project. And in 2014, the mayor of Baltimore appointed Sherrod to the city's heroin treatment and prevention task force. During the protests in Baltimore following the death of Freddie Gray, Sherrod was an action consultant to then Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rollins-Blake's administration. Today, he speaks at colleges and universities nationwide and internationally, on public policy, re-entry into society after reincarnation, and substance abuse prevention. And I may add that his first book, Redemption, is an international bestseller and translated into many languages, which is really remarkable for um, a first-time author to have his book um, nationally and internationally known. So please join me in welcoming Baltimorean and author Kevin Sherritt and his guest moderator, Mark Steiner. Good evening. How are you all doing? Thank you. Very good. Good to see you all here. So uh, I've been actually interviewing Kevin since his first book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why why stop now? Four years ago. (laughs) Four years. And this book has a special ring for me, for both of us, I think, because um, it's also centered in part around um, a particular man that we can talk about just for a Mm -hmm. minute, whose name uh, is Nelson Malden, who we both met independently of one another, who was Martin Luther King's barber in Montgomery, Alabama, 
we're now shooting a document. We f released the first part of our documentary with Nelson, um, and uh, his book came out almost at the same time. And the documentary is pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> good job. And uh, who's a really interesting human being. So um, I think that's probably a good way to start before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of what's inside the book. Um, is you're meeting Nelson here in Baltimore. Right, right. Um, and uh, how that led to this. 2016. Um, so actually, um, November the 18th, 2016. And I remember the date because you get those Facebook reminders of what you were doing a year ago. So uh, November 16th, 2016. Um, and it was 12 days after the... Um, the election, the presidential election. Which election was that? <laughs> the one that many of us might be trying to forget, that one. Um, but at that time, I had so many, I had all these emotions and feelings about that election. You know what I mean? Like many Americans did, because that, it was draining, right? It was emotionally draining for a lot of us. And so when I met Nelson, this just chance meeting, uh, 12 days later, I had no idea that we would go on this journey together to put together this book about civil rights and social justice. And again, at that time, I had this, I had this negative energy in me from, the, from that election, and I needed to do something with it. And I had no idea, again, that this something would be meeting this gentleman and going on this journey. So, I mean, but there was something about Nelson that inspired you to want to go down to visit with him, spend time in Montgomery, Alabama, to unearth all of this through his eyes. Right. And so just, I met Nelson in Baltimore at the, uh, the Motor House Theater, and he said, um, he sat next to me backstage. He was getting ready to speak that day, and he sat next to me backstage, and he said, I was Dr. King's barber. And I looked at him like, what? Because that's just not something you expect to hear from someone, right? And um, we started talking. He was supposed to be on the stage. And we spent about 50 minutes backstage talking. And he almost, we almost forgot that he was supposed to be doing this presentation. And so we had this conversation about civil rights, social justice, what it was like 50 years ago in America during the time that he spent with Dr. King. And... Um, so a short time after, he gave me his phone number. He said, if you ever want to come to Montgomery, come on down. At the same time, I said to him, I said, well, had you ever thought about writing a book? And he said, well, I've thought about it, but I've just never done it before. He said, come on down to Montgomery, Alabama. I'll show you around and we'll talk. And a short time later, I was <laughs> putting together an outline and on a plane and headed to a place that I'd never been before coming from West Baltimore. So in, in a lot of ways, this book was, a, was, a, was your exploration, discovering a world that you didn't know, mm -hmm. that you believe was denied in many ways to many people to understand, which is the history, our own modern history of civil rights in America. I'll just read one little quote from your book. Sure. Since I have your book, and you don't, where is your book, man? <laughs> you stole mine. I, oh, no, this is mine, man. You wrote it to me. You I got said, my right copy. Here, this is my book. Um, and you can't have it back in. <laughs> okay. So you wrote, um, after speaking with Nelson for many months about the American Civil Rights Movement and people and events that played major roles in its success, I increasingly felt that in school and in life, I had missed, missed out on one of the most important parts of American history. 
I would have loved to have been in Selma with the people who were making a difference. I was grateful to be able to see through Nelson's stories, the events that unfolded in front of his eyes, to hear about the character of the people leading to the movement. This is a unique opportunity. And what you kept writing about in different parts of this book was that you didn't know this past. This past right. was like foreign to you. Much of it was foreign. Grow, growing up in Baltimore, um, I did, we didn't get the intricate details of Dr. King's life. We didn't get the intricate details of the civil, civil rights movement when I was in school. We got the watered-down version. We got the, the watered-down version of the I Have a Dream. We got the watered-down version of the, um, the, um, the Mo- Mo- Montgomery bus boycotts. We didn't get the intricate details. And as I talked to more, more people around my age and even younger, and we talked about this issue, and I learned that many of them didn't get it either, right? And I began to feel like we were literally robbed of that history because... Dr. King set an incredible example for a young person in this country or any person in this country. And by us not receiving all the information that we, 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 we that could have been helpful in our lives, I began to feel like we missed a part of that history. So when I got a chance to actually go to Montgomery, Alabama, spend time with this gentleman that had actually was there during this time, and help enlighten me on that history and how it connects to today. That was just a, that was just a huge moment for me and a big, big moment for my life. But one of the things that you kind of talk about in the book a lot, I mean, you go through Selma and Matil, uh, the bloody Sunday that took place on the Pettus Bridge in Selma, um, is that you talked about how this kind of altered your worldview about um, how it changed you how your understanding of the past changed Kevin Sheridan, how you looked at where we are now. I mean, that's, you know, to, 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 to think of people in your generation, since you're a, lot, you know, you're, you're a bit younger than me. Um, a little bit. <laughs> um, that not knowing this incredible piece of our time, that's not just coming to the fore because this is 2018 and... 50 years after 1968, so some things are being unfolded. But I, I want to know first, before we jump into that, how this actually changed you. What it, what it did you to, to see all these things being uncovered that you never really investigated before, whether it was Emmett Till's murder, mm-hmm. the murder of others that happened in the South, what happened in, in that period. So, we, so you, we, we, we heard of Bloody Sunday, but we didn't have the intricate details of Bloody Sunday. Of course we heard about Emmett Till. But as I, as I looked more into that issue, I learned so much more about his death, his brutal death, that I just didn't know. Um, we talk about how it changed, but I think it made, it made me more aware of who I am in this America. It made me more aware of where we are today and why we are where we are today and how a President Trump could have been elected um and it was it was a it was a you know how you kind of like turn over a rock and when you turn over that rock there's some ugly things underneath that you may have not wanted to see or may not wanted to learn but it was almost like turning over that rock and it changed it changed me in a lot of ways and it also made me more 
more um, just aware of today and how those things connect with America today. Because you're talking 50 years ago, but we're still having a conversation in America about police brutality. We're still having a conversation in America about the, the um, poverty, pe uh, people of color living in poverty. We're still having a conversation in America about race relations 50 years after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. And you gotta, at, at some point, you gotta look at, look at those issues and say, like, how did we get to this place? And why are we still, you're talking, fifth, you're talking a half a century. A half a century ago, right? A half a century later, we're still having the same conversations. And, that's, and, I, and I think any, any intelligent person at some point will wanna know, like, why? Why are we here? Why are we still in this place, right? And again, it's funny because this was a short time after President Trump had just been elected. So I'm curious what it was though about that those moments and what it was that Nelson's stories and the way he perceived what he lived through. I guess we should just digress for a moment, talk a bit about Nelson. I mean, Nelson lived in the heart of the civil rights movement. I mean, he lived in Montgomery, Alabama. He cut King's hair in 1954, as he's told both of us. Um, he was part of the Southern Courier, which was a newspaper that for the, for the civil rights movement and put his own life in jeopardy by having the newspaper in his store and selling it, giving it away, I should say. And, and so, I mean, so he was there. The, he saw it all right. and, and, and went through it. So I'm curious, what, talking to an elder like that, what that did for you, because the two things that struck me about this book was, it almost felt like the subtext of your book was both your astonishment at learning the facts of civil rights history, how that affected you today, and also your real desire to share this history, because you feel that too many people in younger generations don't know about it, aren't aware of it. Right, right. Uh, um, just talking to, talking to other so it, it wasn't, it, this wasn't just a, a thing when I said, you know, I want to go out and write this book. There were like conversations that I had with, with people my age, but a lot of conversations I had with people that even, even younger. And I asked them questions about um, what information are they getting in schools and how much do they know about the civil rights movement and how much of Dr. King's life do they utilize today to make the decisions in their world, right? Um, and the more and more I talked to people about these issues, it wasn't, it wasn't me just you know, blindly going out and saying, hey, this, this is the book that the world needs to read. But when I felt like I wasn't the only one, because it could be kind of embarrassing sometimes for people to, you know, to, to not be familiar with um, the, the life of one of the most important black men that ever walked this earth, it's particularly in America, right? It might even be a little embarrassing for you to talk about the civil rights movement and not have um, intricate details or not be able to talk about those issues in intricate details. But they, and what I learned was there were many people that weren't versed on Dr. King's life. There were many people that weren't versed on the, um, on the, um, the civil rights movement. And the, I'm, I'm talking about intelligent people, intelligent black people that I knew and I've been friends with for a long time, that I had a high amount of respect for, who didn't know much. And it made me feel like, Man, this is this is the book that I need to write. And then, of course, you know, it was it was it was the easiest book 
out of the three books that I've had to write, but it was also the hardest. It was the easiest because of working with Nelson. <laughs> this guy is hilarious, 85 years old, um, one of the nicest, kindest people I've ever met. Um, but it was also the hardest because the amount of research that you had to do and, and what you had to uncover, the brutality of the Jim Crow era, the brutality of the American Civil Rights Movement. Um, it, was a hard pill, it was a hard pill to swallow. And just, just a, a quick digression, come right back to what you were just saying. When you said how nice a human being Nelson Malden is um, and his sense of his consciousness about the world. When he sold, we'll t- we, we'll, I'll, I'll let you describe the barbershop and what happens that happened there. But when he sold his family's barbershop, and he was the last one, the Malden Brothers Barbershop, he sold the barbershop for $5,000 to a young man. And I asked Nelson, I said, Nelson, why would you sell it? I mean, 5000 You could have gotten 10 times that, even more. Mm-hmm. You know, 100000 right. whatever you could have gotten for that barbershop because of where it was and its history. And his response was, because I wanted to give a young person a chance to start a business and make, and make a world. So that's, that, that's the kind of human being he is. Um, it was a good businessman because he's retired, living okay. Right. Um, but he, you know, he, he had that consciousness. And don't leave out the fact that this, the guy that he sold a barbershop to used to sweep the floors as a kid. Right, in his barbershop. Right. So now it's like he, pa- he gave him an, an opportunity and he passed this thing over to another generation. Which is why it says a lot about him and about where we are today that we learn from that about how, how important it is to have small businesses and communities that are really dedicated to the community that they're in. But also having elders that get it, that know that the young people may need a hand and might, might need to be pulled along, right? And so now <laughs> this young man that used to sweep the floors in the barbershop is actually the owner of the company or the owner of the business, right? right. We'll get to the audience. Just a second. I'm right there. Um, so I, I want to tell you, part of the book you talk about the, that you're growing up in your world and the um, hip-hop explosion of the late 80s and early 90s and how that grabbed you as a young, right. young person. Right. Um, and as I was reading that, and you know, that, that you, you talked about how it kind of helped, helped deepen your understanding of your own blackness, just listening to that music and what it was saying to that generation, to your generation, that younger generation, younger generations. But I'm curious what you think then is missing for the generation, for want of a better term, the hip-hop generation, and what the elders have, and what they might be missing in each other, what you learned in that bridge between Nelson Malden and civil rights and the period and your own generation. <laughs> Give me a little bit more context when you say missing. Well, I mean, your whole book is about learning something that you never knew before, right? You're learning about the... the, 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 So so I'm curious, even though hip-hop gave you something and opened your eyes to other things, the way it talked about the the complexity of black inner-city life especially, but something happened with this other world opening to you historically, and what and, and what, you, what that says to you about what do you think is missing? I think a lot was missing. I think, I think um, in my opinion, losing, losing the leadership of Dr. King was, a, was uh, 
was major for the uh, black community um, because it left a huge void. Because you can look at from 19, 1968, you can look at 1968 to, you know, it was, a, <laughs> it was a big gap in the black leadership in this country. And even when it came to when I was a young man, you know, you know, growing up in Baltimore, growing up in the streets, growing up in America, for that, for that matter, um, I don't remember looking at a black leader and being and, and inspired to want to be great or want to do great things or want to want to be the president of America or want to um, whatever. Like I don't remember seeing that. I don't. I don't remember having that when I was young. And so what I gravitated to, what we gravitated to when I was young, we gravitated to music, you know. And I know, I know um, <laughs> uh, when I was young, 80s, 90s, uh, my parents or, or uh, the older people in my life, they hated that. That's they right. hated that, we, that <laughs> public enemy was, you know, something that we gravitated to. And NWA was something we gravitated to. They hated that. But that, that, for us, that was the thing that filled that void. The, the music was the thing that filled that void for us, right? Um, and it was actually something that we looked to for leadership, for guidance, right? So for us, we didn't have that. We didn't have a I Have a Dream speech. You know what I mean? We didn't have a march on Washington. But, it, but we were hungry for something. We wanted something like all human beings. All human beings want something, hungry for something. And, and sometimes you're not sure what that something is. And music became that something for us. And so when, when you know, we were kind of looked down on as, as, as we kind of fell in love with music and, and you know, we'd, we'd sometimes recite some, some pretty, you know, tough lyrics. But that's the thing that we gravitated to. I don't know if that's yeah. I mean, I, one of the know. things you also wrote and that's what I wrote about. That's what I wrote about how how I looked at that issue. You also talked about it was after that, after you come home from prison, and to 2012, when Trayvon Martin was killed, that your consciousness around social justice exploded. So that's that's um, that's chapter seven, awakening, and I talked about how. Um, my um, my consciousness actually was evolved when it came to the issues of social justice in America. And I think um, for me, it was actually Trayvon Martin was actually the death of Trayvon Martin was was um, when I really began to understand that the, the, the um, how deep these issues were that we were dealing with in America, because the brutality of his death as this that trial um, played out on, uh, on television. And I'll never forget the recording of when, he, um, when the gunshot went off and he was shot and how that recording was played in the court and played on the news across America. And how I was touched when I heard that sound of the scream and the gunshot. But then you look when the, and then when the not guilty verdict um, was passed down. That was hard. But it, 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 it made you aware, more aware, right? And it made you also want to, it made you want to do something. You're not sure what that something is, 
but you want to do something. You want to get involved. Um, you want to um, you want to you know, participate, but you're still not sure how. You, how you're not sure where. You're not sure, but you want to do something. And Tray, the, the, that Trayvon Martin issue was um, was the start in 2012 for me. I mean, I, I just this is not in the book, but it makes me think about you know just where we are now, right here at this moment, where you have what just happened this week, where two young men were arrested for sitting in Starbucks, Starbucks right. or the young 14-year-old boy who was shot up by a man with a shotgun because he banged in a door, a white family's door to ask for directions to school because he was lost. Right. It's not over. You, you know, um, I keep trying to explain to people that the, the, the advent of the a cell phone camera has changed America in ways that we never expected, right? Because for myself growing up, I, I, I'm not, I've never been surprised about police brutality. I've witnessed it here in Baltimore. I've been a victim of it here in Baltimore. So I always knew that police brutality existed, right? Um, against unarmed and in, 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 in many cases innocent black men. The, the cell phone video camera has basically changed the game when it comes to this issue. Because now this stuff is in America's face. But Nelson talked about that also with the 1965 Bloody Sunday. Right. Right? Right. Because he talked about how the cameras were there that day in Selma and, and, and broadcast this vicious beating of these innocent black people across America. And now America had to face this in their living rooms. And that's what my comparison of today with the cell, the, the, uh, the cell phone camera is putting, these, it's putting police brutality in your living room, right? It's, it's putting police brutality in your face and now you have to go leave the television and try to go to sleep at night after you've watched a vicious shooting, a vicious beating, and so the cell phone video camera, in my opinion, is just, it's, chain, it's, it's, it's changed America so much that now we're, we're forcing uh, police departments across the country to wear video cameras as they interact with people on the street. But again, Nelson talked about how the, the, uh, the Bloody Sunday, 1965 in Selma, how, those, how those, the, those beatings, how that was broadcast across America. And lit, it literally, it forced Lyndon Johnson to, you know, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Right. You know? It so, broke, right. It broke that loose, allowed that to pass in Congress. So that's how powerful that was. So, but this also, connect the dots for us here that you do in this book. And the dots are, again, to me this book is, is your book with Nelson about the civil rights movement in the history, and you outline in detail a lot of our civil rights history that I think is important for people to read, and for young people to read especially, for all of us to read. Um, but this is also, I'll go back to where I started, in a sense, it's about your self-discovery. It's about the discovery of the women who changed the nature of the movement. It's about your discovery um, in your own search for your ancestry and genealogy. 
Oh, yeah. And all of this kind of came together for you. It's just like you're a kind of a self-discovery as a black man who's, who is now discovering new things at your age about how, the, how, how this is connected, connected, how it alters you, how it can alter any of us. Right. So chapter 8 is called I, uh, I Am a Black Man. And in chapter 8, somewhere around the time that I was taking these trips to Montgomery, Alabama, spending time with this 85-year-old, 84-year-old man that had been part of the civil rights. He'll be 85. Yeah, Don't rush him. November, November 8th. <laughs> and spending this time with this gentleman, it made me start to think about my own place in the world, my own legacy in the world. And, um, and just through that, just learning more and, and that experience, it actually made me go and do a, um, a DNA test. A ancestry DNA test. How many, people in this room have done, how many people in this room have done a DNA test? DNA, oh, just wow. curious. Okay. Okay. A couple? Yeah, and so it made me go do this, um, this, genea- this uh, DNA test. And it was, it was, it was funny, but it was, it, was, um, it was just an amazing experience because my whole life I've been told <laughs> that, I was, that my family was um, connected to um, the Cherokee Indian. Right, everybody wants to be a Cherokee and, Indian. <laughs> well, dude, and so when the results came back, <laughs> and I wasn't, I was like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> what's go- what's going on here?" So I actually called my sister and I said, "Um, I said, hey, I think I was the uh, the kid that got stolen out of the the, um, the nursery because something ain't right here," and we started laughing. Um. But the results were a zero Native American Indian. Now, like I said, I would tell anybody that would listen to, hey, my, my second great-grandmother, she was a Cherokee Indian from the South. And, I mean, I probably told a thousand people this story that I thought was a story. So when I got the results back, I, you know, I was really shocked. Um, but then what I did was I actually said, um, I actually called the uh, a genealogy search center here in Baltimore. And we went on this journey of doing the genealogy search, and we was able to find my my um, my uh, great second great grandmother in Mississippi, and then we was able to find her daughter, which would have been my great grandmother in South Carolina, um, and that was that was like <laughs> that was crazy because in the nineteen well, let me just go back for a second on the, the DNA test. We didn't find any Cherokee Indian, but my, my, uh, my white DNA was 17, 15%. So I was like, wow, what, what the heck is this, all of this about, right? So by the time we made it to the genealogy center, we, we found uh, the 1900, um, oh, um, what is it, the, the 1900 census report. Yeah. 1900 census, 1900 and the 1910 census report, and we found my my uh, great grandmother, and we was able to trace her back. But her race was marked um, mulatto in the 1900 census report. And so, talking to the, the genealogist and telling her what I found in the in the um, the ancestry.com uh, information, we kind of put two and two together, and it was pretty clear that the, uh, there was no. <laughs> Cherokee Indian, that's a myth. Um, but my, my ancestry was a lot different than what I ever thought it would be. And 
let me just go back for a second. What prompted that whole journey was also, wasn't just spending time with Nelson, but it was also the fact, the fact that he, 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 he said, um, he was telling me his ancestry, and he was telling me that he had, um, it was just this strange, he had, um, um, his, his, his great-grandfather had 10 kids by a white woman, 10 kids by a black woman, and 10 kids by a Native American woman in, um, in Alabama. Actually, yeah, Florida. Pensacola, Florida. Right. And that's what made me say, wow, that's pretty deep. And that's what sent me on this journey to even just discover more about myself. But this whole thing for me was a discovery. It wasn't just um, a civil rights issue, learning more about this. It wasn't just learning more about Dr. King. It was it's also learning about who are you as a black person in this Americas, right? And I and I, I truly believe that for you to for you to move forward in this world, you really have to like you really have to know who you are, who you are, what you are, what makes you tick, right? Um, yeah, and that journey was just. That was an incredible journey. So one of the things you talk, you talk about in the book here, and I think before we open it up to the, everybody who's joining on this conversation, um, is, and it has to do with how you wrote the book, what the detail on the book about the civil rights movement, but what you think is missing in our schools, both in terms of history, and, in, and you say two things happen to our kids, especially black children, is not knowing the history, A, and B, the over-disciplinary response to our children in our schools. Yeah, like, if you, don't, if, you don't know, if you don't know your history, there's a lot missing in your life. There's a huge um, piece of you that's missing when you don't know your history, right? And the civil rights, Amer- the American civil rights movement is a, is a very important part of that history, um, in a later chapter, I talked to a, um, a Baltimore County um, school, former Baltimore County school board member that talked to me about how information gets into a curriculum and how that curriculum gets into the classroom. And we had a conversation about how black history, you know, um, black history month we need a lot more than just Black History Month in our schools. This is American history. It's an ugly part of American history, but it's, it's American history, and it's, Ameri- and, it's, and it's history that deserves more than just one month a year, in my opinion. In my opinion, it deserves a lot more than that, because even if you, you go all the way back to the days of slavery, were those... The, the time of slavery, this country benefited in a huge way. This country began to evolve through, because of the, um, the American slave trade. And then you talk about the American Civil Rights Movement and how the country evolved again from the American Civil Rights Movement. So that's a huge part of history and again, if, if, if a young person really doesn't understand that, 
how do you find your place in this America today, right? And that's extremely important because, again, you have to understand who you are for you to move forward in life. And we're robbing young people of, of some, some very important history, not, and, and, and also of some very important leaders and, and rich leaders. Nelson talked to me about, it wasn't just Dr. King, and of course it wasn't just some of the other um, civil rights leaders, but it was also <laughs> a lot of women behind the scenes. Um, they played a very important role in the American civil rights movement. He told me this story about um, Hazel, Hazel Gregory. Right. Right? Hazel Gregory. She was Dr. King's secretary. And he told me this story about how she, um, um, there was um, the Freedom Riders were at the, the bus station in Montgomery. And they were being attacked by the Ku Klux Klan. And so she crafted this, this idea that she was sending, she would call the, the, um, the black-owned funeral homes in Montgomery, and they would send the hearse to the train station, I mean, to the bus station, and they would transport the injured out of the train station because the Klan wouldn't let them out of the train station. I mean, excuse me, the bus station. So they put them in, the her- in several of these her- the hearse, and they transported them out. And so Hazel Gregory was one of the people behind the scenes that most of us probably have never even heard of. But he had talked about other women that were intricate in the, in the, right. in the movement. You, you mentioned Septima Clark in, in your book. Um, Ida B. Wells. Ida B. And, and in the movement itself, mm-hmm. Nelson talks about all these other women, Georgia Gilmore, Mary Fair Burke, Joanne Robinson. These are women who actually started the movement, who made sure King was head of the Improvement Association. Um, as Nelson, I love the story Nelson tells. He always talks about it, and it's it'd be, without self- the women, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. It right. would not have happened. And so, again, we talk about this is American history. It's not just African American history. It's our history, right? Our history. And so, again, I, you know, my humble opinion, this it needs to be an important part of the school curriculum that young people can. Um, Get more out of this information, and you like to see this big. You like to see your book be part of that curriculum for these absolutely. kids. Absolutely, absolutely, no, no doubt about it. Right, absolutely. No, and the parts of the book here. I mean, Nelson's story in this book is really well done. I think, and the parts of civil rights history you pull out, tell in detail, are really important as well. Um, given the time, I think it'd be good to open up to folks here in the audience who want to. Are we doing? Sure. Do folks need mics, or are we just talking? I wasn't sure y'all were doing it. So, go ahead. You, actually, you had your hand away first, didn't you? Nelson began cutting, um, he became Dr. Martin Luther King's barber in Montgomery, Alabama in 1954, right? Um, Dr. King had just, you know, arrived in Montgomery to become the, um, the pastor at um, Dexter Avenue uh, Baptist Church, Right? So he came to Montgomery to become the, the, um, the pastor at the church, 1954. Nelson was still a, a student at Alabama State University. So yeah, Nelson was 20 and King was 25. 25 years old. And so that's how their relationship began to evolve. 
Nelson was his barber for the first six years that Dr. King lived in Montgomery. He was having an impact yeah. on the yell- younger Nelson at the same time that he was beginning to have an impact on the world. Because he had just arrived in 54 in to become the, the pastor at the church. 1955, Rosa Parks, December 1st, gets arrested on a bus. King was 26 when he led yeah. the Montgomery Improvement Association. Only 26 years old. Yeah. And as a- Nelson says, I guess my advice, this is a great little, I love the way Nelson puts this. Nelson said that, um, <laughs> um, this is a selfish plug. If you can go watch our 11 minute documentary, it's at alabamachronicles.com. It's the first of a series we're right. doing with Nelson. Right. But he, Nelson says, <laughs> when, when he first came to Montgomery, he called King, he said, King was just an insignificant little fella. And only the folks at Dexter knew who he was before he exploded onto the scene. And nobody else can talk like that. Right. Oh, Nelson's right. About <laughs> Dr. King. No, 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 I would never call King an little fellow. But, but, but a friend. Right. Um, so that was very funny how he put that. Can, can, can say that. Uh, oh, we answered that question. Yes. It's not quite your book. Yeah, but. That's, that's not my book. That's, that's another book. But it's actually a really good question. So I let I let Mark oh, dive, dive into that. <laughs> I mean, it's complex. I mean, Winnie Mandela was a much more radical and revolutionary figure than her husband Nelson Mandela. They were both incredible human beings, obviously. Um, but she helped radicalize Nelson into Nelson Mandela, not Nelson Malden, Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Um, into the leader that he was. Again, the role the women played. And, I mean, it's a very complex question about what happened in South Africa now, because now you see the, the corruption in the South African government that happened over the last 10 or 12 years that, that took place. You see Cyril Ramaphosa now taking over the country. Um, and people hope in Cyril Ramaphosa, who's also a leader of the African National Congress, and a union leader, and became a billionaire, though now a multimillionaire. Uh, that he will help turn things around. It's very, I mean, there's a lot we can learn from South Africa. There's a lot that, that um, all the struggles are connected, you know, and I think there's no mistake that why so many of the struggles come out, that all of our struggles here in America, the majority of our struggles here in America that we learn from come out of the black struggle for freedom in this country. And I think there's, a, and so we all have to learn from that. The same that came out of the struggles against colonialism in Africa. And there's a lot there, you know, so... But I don't want to get stuck in South Africa today. And I see we have a lot of Deltas in the house, too. I see a cup... <laughs> this is good. California. Sacramento, well, no, California. No, no. Is that what you mean? You're Sacramento. talking about Walter Scott. Uh, oh, Walter Scott. 20, that was South Carolina, right? 20, right. 2016, right? You lose track. Walter Scott, 2016. And the bravery. The bravery. The, the way that that guy stood at that fence, right? He, he was watching a... He was watching... A murder, right? Forget about police brutality. That wasn't bo- police brutality. That's what a homi- That's what a homicide looks like. And when I, when I saw that video, you know, I'm a guy from West Baltimore, grew up in the streets, in and out of trouble, making bad choices, right? And I witnessed a lot of stuff, a lot of ugly stuff. And when I saw that video of that man running away, because he was at least what 20 yards. Right, thirty maybe thirty yards. That's what a that's what a homicide looks like, right? Um, 
But Nelson, in the, in, Nelson talked to me about, and you're absolutely right, this is not new stuff. It's not new. It's new to some, but it's not new to us. But um, Nelson talked to me about the uh, 1965 um, Bloody Sunday and the brutality of Bloody Sunday. But Bloody Sunday had been happening for a while. This was one of the first times it was caught on camera by major news networks and broadcast to the world. And it, 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 it prompted some changes. But, and again, it's funny you mentioned that because even the Walter Scott, Scott case and many of the other cases that were caught on video prompted some changes. We, we just hope that there's So one thing we got to really take into account is the trauma, right? The trauma um, from the, you know, the Jim Crow era because many of them were traumatized, right? Um, the brutal beatings, the fear, even in the, um, the Emmett Till case, his father, they, you know, after Emmett Till was killed, his, 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 um, Emmett Till's aunt left uh, Money, uh, Mississippi, and she said, I can never go back. You know, I can never go back to that place. And so a lot of people, you know, not, you know, many of people in that, in that generation, they don't want to talk about that pain. It was painful. It was a painful time. Um, and, I, and it's funny you brought that up because about two weeks ago, Nelson went to the African-American History Museum in Washington and gave an oral history. And so they're, they're sorting out the details. They're asking them for like, well, uh, do you have the, the clippers that you cut Dr. King's hair with? Like, and like items from that period that they want to put in, in the museum. Um, but you're absolutely right. And, and that's, I was able to, tap into history through an, um, a man who was literally in an archive, a, a, a walking archives of history, because he has so much information. This could have easily been a 700-page book without a, lot of, um, without a lot of work. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, and he's 84, he'll be 85, and soon, you know, we won't have these individuals. So, you know, if you have an individual in your life that's a family member that's been through that time and been through that history, and, and if you can, if there's a way for you to document that, if there's a way, you know, for you to get that story out there, I would definitely encourage it. Because that, that is a part of, of, of history. It's an important part. So, Kevin, you, in your book, I mean, you connect, try to attempt to connect some of these dots. As someone who also came from the streets and participated in the things that you're speaking about in some levels and, and about the role of educational history and how that changes young minds. I mean, that's part of what your, your reason for doing all this. I think, you, I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 I agree with you 100%. Because if you, if you knew that struggle, like I, I'm, I'm almost certain that if, if young men and young women really understood that struggle, what that struggle was about, and why that struggle allows you the freedom that you have right now, they might, have a, they might look at life a little different. And I'm almost like, and, and you know, I think that when I was, um, I, I, and I keep saying this to myself, if, when I was a young knucklehead kid from West Baltimore, in and out of trouble, if I had this history, 
would I have made better choices? And I'm, I'm almost certain I would have. I believe that I would have made different life choices, better, more responsible life choices, if I had had this history when I was younger. And that's why I'm a, I advocate, and I agree with you 100%. And you have it now. I have it now. The problem is that I have it now. I survived the storm. But many of our young people, they're not surviving the storm. So they might not grow to my age to mature and, 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 and grow and learn because many, we're losing so many of them. We're losing so many young black men. We're losing so many young black women that we got to do something now because we're just losing so many young people. And, and I believe that this, this history, this information, this education, I believe it can be really helpful. I had a school board member enlighten me about the whole process, right? Because a lot of times our teachers, our principals, they get a bad rap. The curriculum doesn't start with the principal, right? The, prin the, the curriculum starts at the board level. This is what you must teach. Right, Here's exactly, exactly. So I had, a, I had a Baltimore County school board member enlighten me in, in the book because principals and, and teachers do get a bad rap, right, tremendously. And I was trying to figure out, like, so where does it start? Well, it starts at a higher level. And so that's where the level of where much of the conversation needs to be had about why our kids in the schools, why does a principal, why can't is, is restrained from teaching this information in, in the school, right? Um, <laughs> and we'll come back. Yeah. We'll, come, we'll come back to you. Take your time. And, and those are important points. I mean, my no, back, absolutely. I mean, we were talking we in the back. We were talking about this. That we were just talking about. Yeah, it. we were. But one of the things we I think we make a mistake, and this is not my show; it's yours tonight. But I just have to say this, and we were, you were saying that is that we take Black history. So, you know, we we started out with Carl Woodson and Negro History Week that for years existed that only Black folks paid attention to back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s and became Black History Month. But the reality is, as the head of the African American Museum in DC and I were talking about, Dr. Bunch, is that, that it's not just black history. This is American history. American history. This is our history. Right. It's all of our histories. Mm -hmm. and, and if we don't start winding this stuff around so that all of it is intertwined from the beginning in all the history and just making it a part of it, we lose too much, and our kids lose too much, and we lose who we really are or who we should be. You know, but I'll stop there. Since you told it to me, I want to throw this to Kevin. This is Kevin's night, but people who no, I do it <laughs> because all right. There was a day in 1966 um, at the Pegleg Resort when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had a meeting. And I'm, I'm, working, I'm working on this story, and I'm interviewing all the folks who were at that meeting who are still alive right now. The meeting, the vote was, the discussion was telling white people to leave the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was one of the main civil rights groups people don't know in the South, that I was part of, too, as a young, 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 young man, really young. Um, 14, actually, 15, 16 years old. So they had a vote to ask people to, white people to leave. The vote was 19-4, 18 against, 
with 24 abstentions. Most of the 24 abstentions were the white workers in SNCC. What was 1918? It was very close. So it's a really interesting discussion took place. I think the public, we need to wrestle with that because of what the implications are for history since then. We don't know how pivotal that moment that was. But one of the things that meeting was, was for the white organizers to move into poor white and working, white working class communities to organize and to build these bridges between people. Um, there was a group in Chicago called the Young Patriots. The Young Patriots were the Appalachian white version of the Black Panther Party in Chicago that I was part of back in the late 60s. And they built a coalition. The Panthers built a coalition between the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots, the Young Lords, the Brown Berets, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Rican-Americans, poor whites, poor blacks, and then some other Asian groups as well. The first, they, they were, they called themselves the Rainbow Coalition. They, before Jesse Jackson came out of the word, they were the Rainbow Coalition, which is why they destroyed the Panthers and others in Chicago, because they didn't want to see that happen. So I'm saying all that to you, sir, to say that if we do not preach and talk to white communities about this, we've lost everything. So that, I mean, I know, so, so, you know, I was thinking as you were asking Kevin these questions and talking about police brutality stuff when you were talking about it so eloquently, Kevin, that, and I heard these multi-generational voices from black folks in this room talk about, yes, about what happens with the police and with the reality of being black in America. Of course you understand it, because you're black in America. So, but the, the larger population has to understand it. And that, to me, yeah, that's not your job. That's my job. So, you know, so, so you, and people who believe what I believe cannot shrink from that, nor shrink from whatever confrontation might come of that, if we have any chance of surviving as a nation. Because that racism is eating us up from the inside out. Sorry, I mean, that's... Why? The title? Yeah. Oh, the so, title, yeah, tell yeah, the, the title. That's a really good that story. So I, of course, I've seen the words, the colored waiting room, um, in books, um, in history books, you know, in, in, in documentaries. I've seen the words, right? Um, the summer of 2017, I was in, in Montgomery, and this was the first time that Nelson had invited me inside the barbershop, right? So this, this barbershop where Dr. King used to get his hair cut is still there at uh, uh, 407 South Jackson Street, a couple blocks down the street from um, Alabama State University, just a few blocks. And when you walk into this barbershop, it looks like 1965 all over again, right? Right? You can attest yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. The pictures on the wall of uh, Andrew Young and, and Ralph Abernathy and Coretta Scott King. All of them came to that barbershop to get their hair cut, except and they Coretta. all came <laughs> there to get their hair cut. Abernathy was one of his clients as well, right? Um, so when I walked into the barbershop, I'm looking at all these pictures, and I see all these old pictures and on the wall, and, and as I walk through the barbershop in the back, I see the sign hanging from the ceiling. And it says the colored waiting room. And I'm like, what, what is that, right? Because again, I'd only seen these things in history books and, and on documentaries. 
And when I saw it, I was stunned. Um, but I was also stunned. Um, um, I was offended by seeing this sign. So this sign was actually taken from a train, a, um, a rail station in St. Louis. So at the end of uh, desegregation, they began to take these signs down, and they became collector, collector items for individuals. And Nelson actually bought that sign, and he put it in the barbershop, in the back of the barbershop as a collector's item. And so he began to tell me the story about the origin of this sign, and it came from St. Louis, and he bought it from this collector, and it had been, it's been there for decades. And I felt like this needs to be the title of the book because I wanted, I wanted a title that would, 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 would shock people, but I also wanted a title that would grab people's attention, and I felt like the colored waiting room was just, a, for, for me, it was just a perfect title for this book, right? Because I wanted people to look at it and, and, and have all kind of different feelings about it. Um, because I wanted that conversation to continue. It's part of that history that can't be erased. Thank you, guys. Thanks Thank for you. the great question. Great question. I appreciate it. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.